Hello, and welcome to the fourth podcast of InfoSec Sync, where we keep you in sync with the ever-changing world of information security. I'm your host, Matt Morris. And I'm your host, Nick Thomas. And give us 60 minutes, and we will keep you on top of the latest security news and help you gain CPEs while tuning in. InfoSec Sync is brought to you by the Van Dyke Technology Group. At Van Dyke, their work is focused on the performance and security of information systems of national impact. Optimize performance, maximize security. Experience a Van Dyke difference and visit them on the web at vdtg.com. Also brought to you by VicTech. At VicTech, they pride themselves on teamwork, customer satisfaction, and providing customers with elite engineering and technology solutions. They aim to become an ever more dominant force in every area, product, or service they represent. Visit them on the web at VicTech.net. That's V-I-K-T-E-C-H dot net. And now, for the stories of the week ending September 26, 2014. In ongoing news, the FBI vowed Monday to widen a probe into the massive hacking of naked celebrity photos if necessary after new reported leaks including nude shots of Kim Kardashian. The Federal Bureau of Investigation launched an investigation earlier this month after a first batch of pictures including of Hunger Games megastar Jennifer Lawrence was published. On Saturday, U.S. media reported that more nude celebrity photos, including reality star Kardashian and actress Vanessa Hudgens, had been circulating on social media. The pictures, also including U.S. soccer star Hope Solo, appeared briefly on 4chan and Reddit before being removed, celebrity gossip site TMZ reported. BuzzFeed said that personal videos and photos belonging to actress Aubrey Plaza, Mary-Kate Olsen, Hayden Pantier, and Lily Sabisky were posted, in addition to previously unseen pictures of Lawrence. The FBI's investigation into alleged computer intrusion slash theft is continuing, FBI Los Angeles spokeswoman Laura Emiller told AFP Monday. I'm unable to comment on specifics with regard to alleged victims, but any individual who believes they are a victim of these violations is encouraged to report it, if not already engaged with law enforcement, she added. Hackers first released a trove of nude starlets photos on September 1st after snatching them from Apple's iCloud in what the tech giant has called a targeted attack. The company has denied its cloud storage system was breached, suggesting that the celebrities had their accounts hacked by using easy-to-guess passwords or by giving up their personal data to cybercriminals posing as Apple, a technique known as phishing. In addition to Lawrence, celebrities whose pictures were allegedly stolen and posted online in early September included model Kate Upton, singer Avril Lavigne, and actress Gabrielle Union. Well, Matt, I guess this isn't going to stop. Yeah, uh, I think that we're going to be reporting on this for a while. To be honest with you, um, this is not good. And we we said this before. I mean, I kind of say this every podcast, but every single detrimental um, event that occurs, I say, is not good for information security and for people's perception of using technology. In this case, they name drop phishing, um, easy to guess passwords. It looks like Apple has taken a good step forward in actually uh, enabling the two-step verification um, that's currently being used. Uh, They're urging use. I don't know if it's a mandatory use at this stage, Um, but I think new accounts, um, it may come enabled by default. Um, So that's a good step forward. However, like I said, these pictures, you know, just like with any other targeted attack, they're going to be used for other attacks. So there's going to be, you know, Trojans that are attached to the back end of these things. There's going to be um, other phishing attempts that are used with these photos. Again, if there's something on a site, if there's a, a link, if there's something, I can't stress it enough. Do not click this. These, uh, the integrity of these photos and everything that's out there is completely compromised. It's in the wrong hands, and you know I think we will be, we will be uh, reporting on this for a while. The good thing is I think that's coming out of this is, I mean, what is the most popular um, technology that's used now? I think it's it's within 
Apple's product line. I mean, we have the I- iPhone, iPod, iPad, you know, you name it. And I think that uh, a lot of individuals that are using these services are asking questions now to the vendor saying, what are you doing for security? I mean, Apple is a technology giant. It's a, it's a, it's a, mo- they're, they're a technology giant, technology mogul. I think that they're definitely widely used. And I think a lot of people are looking up to them as the vendor now for um, security control implementations to make their user experience more secure. I agree. So um, I actually have a story here, unless you have something else to add um, to the iCloud. No, I think I'm done okay, with yeah, iCloud for now. Yeah, we're, we're done with iCloud for now. Um, so the other story we had to report was uh, Spain's national court has indicted nine individuals on fraud charges for allegedly participating in a massive cyber fraud operation that spanned the globe. The group is accused of withdrawing money from ATMs in February 2013 using information provided by a group of hackers that had penetrated the network of a credit card processor and compromised prepaid debit cards associated with the Bank Muscat in Omen. Wow. Yep. According to the Associated Press, after obtaining access code numbers, the thieves uh, around the globe made 34,000 cash withdrawals in roughly two dozen countries. The crew in Spain allegedly stole $390,078 during the early hours of February 20th, uh, 2013. Judge Eloy Velasco said that there was evidence that the suspect belonged to an international criminal operation and that the suspects had raided an ATM in a similar way in December 2012, according to that report. In the same month, the hackers had compromised prepaid debit card accounts in the National Bank of Ras al Kama. Last May, authorities in the U.S. charged seven other individuals for their roles in the scam, as well as an eighth suspect who was deceased. Six months later, in November, five more were arrested. Some of the U.S. defendants have already pleaded guilty. Um, And I quote, This case is another example of the ability of the cybercriminals to inflict significant damage to the world's financial systems. And that was um, stated by a U.S. Secret Service special agent in charge, um, and that was Stephen Hughes, and that was released in November. And uh, another statement from him was, this investigation and the resulting indictments should serve, should serve as a reminder to cybercriminals that law enforcement will continue to utilize cutting-edge investigative techniques and traditional tactics and hard work to thwart complex transnational cybercriminal activity. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, this is definitely uh, a problem in the banking industry, um, and I think that we're going to see more uh, laws coming out from a financial aspect um, and and for the financial industry. We rely on the payment cards to make payments and to pay bills, to um, conduct our lives, go to the gas pump, go pay for Basically to do everything we do in our lives. Everything that we do in our lives, and, you know, we have to keep that in the forefront. Um, so, uh, keeping with that, there was actually another report that came out. Um, representatives from European banks have signed a memorandum of understanding on Monday with Europol in an effort to enhance cooperation in the fight against cybercrime. The agreement between the European Banking Federation and the European Cybercrime Center at Europol enables the exchange of data and expertise between the two organizations. On one hand, the data provided by Europol helps financial institutions protect themselves against emerging threats. On the other hand, law enforcement agencies are more capable of investigating cybercrimes and prosecuting perpetrators if they are kept up to date on new malware and novel payment fraud methods. The partnership is expected to have positive results since the EBF provides a link between the major financial institutions while Europol connects the cyber units of police forces from European Union member states. The security measures deployed these days by many European financial institutions make it significantly more difficult to commit payment card fraud. However, cybercrime groups are not giving up, a fact demonstrated by the recent investigations and prosecutions. Quote, today marks an important day for both EU law enforcement and the banking industry. We have agreed to intensify mutual cooperation, respecting relevant national legislation, to jointly enhance our ability to to prevent, prosecute, and disrupt cybercrime against the financial sector, commented Trolls Ording, head of the EC3. This is more than a ceremonial gesture. This is the establishment of a trusted relationship 
aimed at achieving tangible results that will make life more difficult for criminals and life easier for the banking sector and all of us who use these important services. Our members already cooperate intensely with their own national police authorities in order to fight with financial cybercrime. Our partnership with Europol now adds a European dimension to this important work. International cooperation between banks and law enforcement bodies is essential because it is clear that criminals know no borders. Earlier this month, Europol announced the launch of a new cybercrime task force led by Andy Archibald, Deputy Director of the National Cybercrime Unit at the UK's National Crime Agency. This summer, Europol also signed an agreement with the European Union Agency for Network and Information Security as part of efforts to combat cybercrime. So it really seems that, you know, um, law enforcement is taking cybercrime seriously and uh, that Europol is stepping up to the plate. I think this is great. And, uh, you know, we'll see what happens with the Cybercrime Task Force, and uh, we'll have to definitely follow Europol with what's going on there. It seems like they're taking the, the right step forward here. Yeah. So another story that we have is uh, as part of its reorganization efforts, Microsoft has decided to shut down its trustworthy computing unit that had been focusing on improving customers' trust in the company's commercial products. While TWC will no longer function as a standalone business unit, its general manager, John Lambert, noted on Twitter that they're just moving to a new home and that SDL, which is the Security Development Lifecycle, Operational Security, Pentest, MSRC, Blue Hat, are just under a new roof. And some of the members of the TWC t- team are among the 2,100 employees laid, o- laid off by Microsoft last week. However, most of the team will join the company's Cloud and Enterprise Division, or the Legal and Corporate Affairs Group. Um, he says that I will continue to lead the trustworthy computing team in our new home as part of the cloud and enterprise division. Significantly, trustworthy computing will maintain our company-wide responsibility for centrally driven programs such as the software development lifecycle, SDL, online security assurance, OSA. And that was said by John Lambert. Um, however, let's see, Scott Charney, who is the corporate vice president of the trustworthy computing division, said in a blog post on Monday, but this change will also allow us to embed ourselves more fully in the engineering divisions most responsible for the future of cloud and security, while increasing the impact of our critical work on privacy issues by integrating those functions directly into the appropriate engineering and legal policy organizations. He says, I was the architect of these changes. This is not about the company's loss of focus or demutation of commitment. Rather, in my view, these changes are necessary if we are to advance the state of trust in computing. And then Charney also added um, that last bit, but Microsoft's trustworthy computing, computing initiative was announced back in 2002 by Bill Gates, and he emphasized that at the time they needed there was a need for such a, f- a platform and said, Every week, uh, there are reports of newly discovered security problems in all types of software, from individual applications and services to Windows, Linux, Unix, and other platforms. He says, we have done a great job of having teams work around the clock to deliver security fixes for any problems that arise. Our responsiveness has been unmatched, but as an industry leader, we can and must do better. That was in a memo to employees, but... Brad Hill, which is a security technologist at eBay, explained in a post on Google Plus the importance of the trustworthy computing division and its impact on the security landscape over the past years. He says, and I quote, that trustworthy computing dysphoria today constitutes a big part of the core of the modern information security industry. Veterans of TWC are security leaders and at Yahoo, Google, PayPal, Facebook, Adobe, VMware, and dozens of other companies. He says, from the hapless, hopeless position the industry found ourselves in a dozen years ago, we're today starting to stand up credible defenses against nation-state-level attackers. And while the heavyweight SDL processes of five years ago have been streamlined, even at Microsoft, Every security program today has some of the DNA of the trustworthy computing in it and thinks about the job it exists to do in a different way because of it. In addition to shutting down the trustworthy computing, Microsoft is closing down its research facility in Silicon Valley. 
The organization's plans on cutting a total of 18,000 jobs, which represents 14% of its workforce. Roughly 12,500 of the job cuts are related to the recently acquired mobile device manufacturer, Nokia. What a story that was, Matt. So Absolutely. let's take a break from um, from the stories real quick, and let's do the uh, CIO, CISO corner. Um, who do we have today? So today we actually have um, Brian Price. So you guys know that I work for the Van Dyke Technology Group, and we have a um, Cyber Commercial Solutions. So Brian Price is the is currently the uh, Commercial Cyber Solutions Product Manager for the Van Dyke Technology Group. In his current role, he oversees applied research and development activities, including software prototyping, systems integration, and product evaluations to help small and mid-sized companies bolster their cybersecurity posture. Prior to joining Van Dyke, Mr. Price was a lead associate at Booz Allen Hamilton, where he led multiple software development teams that built enterprise systems in the areas of cloud computing, information assurance, cybersecurity, and biometrics. He holds a Bachelor's of Science in Computer Science from Salisbury University and is a member of several professional organizations. So um, with that... Welcome, Brian. Welcome, Brian. Hi, everybody. How's it going? (laughs) It's uh, great. Hopefully, it's going well out there. So, um, as you guys know, we brought Vic on a couple episodes ago. So, we're going to continue this on. But um, here, basically, with the CIO, CISO corner, we want to you know bring somebody in from the front lines and kind of talk to our listeners and and uh, give them a view from that. So, with that, uh, I have a, a few questions um, before our six questions with InfoSec Sync uh, to ask you, Brian. First. Um, what does uh, Van Dyke provide to commercial companies in regards to information security and risk management? Because I know we're we're vast in that space from a commercial standpoint. So, um, can you kind of explain, give a top level view of what Van Dyke provides? Absolutely, Matt. So, um, within our kind of commercial services offerings, um, we kind of lump our our uh, services into two key areas. So, one of which is really helping clients. Uh, proactively take steps to reduce the risk of cybersecurity incidents from occurring, and the other is providing the fast, responsive remediation when those cybersecurity incidents have occurred. Um, you know, we, we offer kind of the, the traditional cybersecurity preventative services, uh, you know, from vulnerability analysis, pen testing, uh, security and risk assessments, um, and we really enrich those through Van Dyke's 12-year history uh, in providing uh, our government clients the support uh, to help protect, you know, some of the most critical data that the nation has. Um, you know, and for a small business, you know, we're about 190 people. Um, we have a extremely set of experienced staff, a wide array of security uh, knowledge and certifications. Um, you know, most of our staff have their CISPs. They've got, you know, CEH along with other certifications. Um, you know, in just a small cross-section, we've got one person on our team um, that's, you know, prior, previously worked at Microsoft, and they currently, um, you know, have supported Fortune 500 companies and helping them to bolster their security practices within their networks. Awesome. We've had, um, you know, another person that's got 20 years of cybersecurity experience, and uh, they've taught courses at NSA, they've taught courses at uh, Boston University and other academic so, institutions. So really well-seasoned staff uh, here at Van Dyke to provide um, solutions to the customer in the commercial realm as well as in the federal realm, which is what we've previously been doing for the past 12 years. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, that's, you know, just a small representation of the people that we take to those small and mid-sized organizations that are really, um, you know, trying to improve their cybersecurity posture. So, you know, we, um, you know, some of the other things that we help to do, we help to really um, assess the state of compliance against regulatory actions and regulatory requirements that organizations have, like HIPAA and PCI DSS. And, you know, we're, we're a small company ourselves, so we don't have, you know, all the expertise that's needed. So we have an extensive partnership of companies that we bring in to help to do that as well. Um, you know, and, and on that remediation side, you know, kind of transitioning from, you know, the preventative side, you know, we, you know, we first kind of go in and isolate, you know, those systems that are affected, then we kind of go through and and provide um, you know the assessment over the potential cause of what the data breach could be and take that information um, and go and, and develop a plan and an implementation strategy to really improve that company uh, and get them back kind of well from a security perspective and you know uh, 
that's kind of our, our core services offering. And then the area that really I'm in charge of is uh, around the solutions development integration, um, which, you know, right now, you know, you touched on some things there, you know, I think in my bio, but, you know, I'm, I'm focusing on, you know, evaluating the commercial and open source solutions um, that, you know, we have that we brought in with our, with our lab environment. Um, and then we take and apply a little bit of the knowledge there within those products. We also prototype some affordable solutions for those small to mid-sized businesses um, and to help really supplement those products. So that could be, you know, using um, any open source tools that are available. Um, Or if you have a a commercial customer that kind of wants to spend a little bit more money to get more security um, from that aspect, you can also look at that and say, all right, we both ends of the spectrum we cover. Absolutely. And I'll give you an example. So we... um, you know, uh, in, in a security assessment, you know, we, we determined that, you know, a customer doesn't have um, a, you know, a security event information manager, or, you know, that will help them really make sense of the intelligence, you know, that's going on. So, you know, we've done the research. No and we've, SIM, no ESM. Exactly. No, no, and they're kind of at ground zero okay. and they're saying, all right, build us up from nothing to something because we have to, we have these yep. regulatory compliances that we have to comply with from HIPAA to PCI DSS to Sarbanes-Oxley, yep. you know, the whole gamut. Exactly. And, you know, so what we've done is we've already done that work, you know, to really figure out, well, what is that suite of different products? And, and the reality is for every customer, they've got different needs, different wants um, and, um, you know, different constraints in their decision making criteria. Some may be motivated by the performance that product needs to provide. Some may be purely motivated by price. Um, and so what we've done is being able to kind of build a comprehensive evaluation criteria to be able to go in and quickly provide some recommendations to help that customer. Absolutely. Very cool. Very cool. So that kind of segues into the uh, next question that we have. So um, with the various issues that you've seen customers face, um, how has uh, Van Dyke provided the solutions and the associated mitigations and remediations? Um, So that kind of comes off of the tiered model um, that you spoke of before and and kind of how you can account for um, cost versus what the customer really wants and what they can really afford and have an affordable security solutions for the customer. So can you share with us some of the various issues that you've seen in the customer space and what you guys have done to, to take care of that or mitigate that for the customer? Absolutely, man. So, you know, uh, one of the first things that I'll back up a little bit, you know, and just kind of describe a little bit of the state of that industry and that market space that we're going after. And, you know, I've seen, you know, so many of those small to mid-sized businesses not really understand um, or consider really security at all, um, you know, whatsoever really within the, within their business. And, um, you know, they think this is just this big company problem. They see the the, the headlines of, you know, Target and Home Depot. Home Depot. Exactly. Apple uh, with their iCloud breach, you know. Exactly. And they think, oh, it only happens to big companies. Well, the reality is, you know, Symantec did a study earlier this year and in January alone, um, you know, there was more cybersecurity reported incidents for companies with employees of between one and 250 people as there was of companies over 2,500 people. Um, and then you compound that with the fact that um, over 60% of the companies that are a small business that experience those attacks go out of business within um, six months of that attack. So you look at something like a code spaces that happened earlier this year, oh. and those are the you know the statistics that really make growing this awareness of cybersecurity um, being a crucial part of a company's overall you know health. Um, you know that that awareness being you know extremely important. So. Absolutely. What what we do is, you know, we, you know, our approach is, you know, we work hand in hand with those companies and we realize that, you know, we're a small business ourselves. We realize the resources a company may have isn't, you know, the same as a target to recover from a data breach. But what we do is we come up with, you know, an iterative approach and an iterative plan to help them kind of get better. Um, You know, it could be something, you know, we had one client um, that, you know, the first step was, you know, we need to, you know, in their organization designate somebody to be in charge of their security and their information security. And we so have a up, sense of ownership. Exactly. And without that, you know, all the other, you know, here's a ton of items that they need to get done, but no one's doing it because no one's responsible for it. You know, and that's a people problem. You know, we have some that's technology problems where they need to implement a solution like the SIEM or something there that we can kind of help with. And then the other side, you know, we have a training problem too, you know, in some organizations where, you know, you have staff that have never, 
you know, they, they heard the word spear phishing, but they don't know what it means. They don't know what to what it means to when they actually get one of those emails, how to sense one, you know, how to sense what that is. And then the other side of that is how to escalate it appropriately so the awareness kind of comes out. Yep, and I think that's key. I mean, with the uh, small and medium-sized businesses or SMBs, you know, you're seeing that. It, it's so easy after a breach to not recover and be resilient if you don't have risk management in place, if you don't you know, understand, okay, this is the business process, this is how the business process can be compromised from a security standpoint, and this is how we can fix it. Um, so definitely very, very, uh, very key areas, and um, that's, that's awesome. So Nick, do you have anything to add? Yeah, so Brian, it sounds like even though the small size of the company um, of Van Dyke uh, with your expertise and the expertise of the company, you could have helped some of these companies with um, the recent breaches and some new mom and pop shops that are coming up. You could probably help them out as well. Yep. Absolutely. absolutely. I, th- I think it's going to be uh, looking good. It's all about making the world a better place from an information security standpoint, and that's that's key. So, um, Brian, on that note, do you have anything additional, such as recent developments, capabilities that you would like to share with our listeners? You know, I'll just touch on a couple things really briefly, but, you know, over the summer, you know, we've done some really exciting prototypes to look at some proactive techniques to look at how you detect malware, um, but not looking at truly signature-based approaches, looking at more um, pattern-based approaches. You know, some of our research has already um, shown um, what we use is we plug some things into some open source products, and we've seen uh, an improvement from 20% detection at a pure signature base out of the box products to in- including some of our proactive techniques to get up to 60% detection That's in awesome. a very cool, you know, short period of time, um, you know, with some, you know, fairly basic techniques that we're constantly elaborating on and right now you know one of the things that we're working on our engineers are very hard at uh, we're putting together you know beyond just the technology um, you know coding and and um, you know you know kind of prototype development we're working on um, a best practices white paper to help with that small to mid-sized businesses looking at cloud technologies um, to awesome. really improve the overall security that they need uh, for, for those different technologies and, and what the best practices are across different avenues. So like a hybrid cloud, public cloud, and private cloud, what that means. You know you said that buzzword, and that's my favorite buzzword, yeah. right? A lot of people know what it is, and some people don't know what it is. So it, it helps that you guys have that expertise to be able yeah. to uh, educate customers on that. And yeah. and we've kind of wanted to do a, a little segment on cloud, and I know I've told our listeners that we're going to do that. And, uh, you know, I kind of have a lot to share from a cloud standpoint and cloud security standpoint. So we'll definitely get to that here in the future. But um, that's that's awesome that you guys are putting that together and making that available for uh, for the smaller companies that are coming up. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, you know, what we're ta- tackling is, you know, that company that wants to move their processes to you know, more of an infrastructure as a service provider, uh, all the way through you know a Platform company that just a wants to Software you know have service. you know a you know Microsoft Office you know solution. Yep. Well, how, how do you secure data in SharePoint Online? Yep. You know, and and those are varied you know different approaches. But you know we, we aim to try to cover most of that. So it's a primer for those businesses. So, so how do you instrument your your security program to have ad- adequate coverage in in each of those environments? That's definitely key. Absolutely. Um, so now we'd like to jump into our six questions with InfoSec Sync. As our listeners know, this is kind of, you know, we have a couple primer questions and then we get into some key questions, some some uh, some really cool things going on. But um, so first question, are you ready for the six questions with InfoSec Sync? I hope so. Okay. All right. Well, let's get started. So uh, question number one, uh, what's your favorite color? Tough question. Uh, let's, <laughs> let's, go, let's go with blue on blue? that. Blue? Yes. Okay. And, and that's because the Van Dyke uh, lanyard and, exactly. and logo yeah, is blue, right? Exactly. All right, we're exactly. thinking we're thinking exactly. blue here. Exactly. All right, all right, I like that. So, uh, what what is your favorite technology? Um, you know, I would say, you know, I, I can't pick it to one technology. I'd say, I know but, this is an open. You know, question, I, I'll, I'll go with technology trend. Okay. I'll say, and one of the technology, my favorite technology trends is really over the past few years the advancement of mobile technology and mobile mm-hmm. platform, mobile computing. So, you know, I, so as a software guy, I'm a big UI UX guy. So. Yep. I want the easiest, simplest, you know, most user-friendly tool. And the cool thing I've seen is more and more and more, um, you know, tools and apps that are being developed that just that just are you know at your fingertips that really help you 
live your life and do things better. Um, and, you know, that's just, you know, really cool. I think, you know, one of the things out of last week uh, or past couple of weeks with Apple releasing Apple Pay, you know, that could be a brand new revolution into, you know, the way that we actually pay for things. It and could the way integrate that, Bitcoin and it, it could integrate a whole gamut of and things. And the security implications, too, of how, you know, a different approach to security in that, you know, um, and, and it's just, I think, very exciting where we are right now. Uh, and just how easy and user-friendly, you know, certain tools, you know, really in platforms are. Absolutely. Making BYOD easier every day, one day at a time, right? So um, question number three, Windows or Linux? Uh, Windows. Uh, And my my reason on that is it just helps me get my job done easier. Um, And, and, you know, I've, you know, had experience in Linux, and, and there are certain to- times that, you know, I need to use that, you know, sometimes between... From using, a development standpoint, from a development perspective, you have to use it. You know, or, you know, I'll, I'll have a, you know, a SIGWIN, um, you know, installation on my Windows box, and I can, you know, get a couple kind of play quick, around with that. you know, shell, you know, commands and stuff done when I need to have some, you know, kind of a quick and dirty approach, so... Awesome. Uh, another controversial question here in the tech community, number four, iOS or Android? Ooh, that is a controversial question. Yeah, it is. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, so... I, I've got to go iOS. So, and, and I'll give you the reason behind it. So, I, I bought in the Apple ecosystem years ago, yep. and it's one of those things. I feel like when you buy into one ecosystem, mm-hmm. it's easier to stay within that ecosystem or wholesale switch completely to everything else. Um, and you know, I originally, and you know, I'll admit I haven't used some of the latest versions of Android, um, but you know, I found their approach to the mobile, you know, OS space the simplest and most secure um, at the time. Um, you know, I thought that, you know. E- when in my day-to-day job, I'm dealing with technology that doesn't work right yep. every day. You know, it's a headache every day. And what I like about that is it's a simple thing that, you know, when after my day is done, I can just get my email or check something and it just works. It works. And you I'm, don't have to worry about what's going on in the exactly. background. You know, you're a UI UX guy. Yeah. So there you go. Front end, it's, it works. No problem. Yeah. Um, so question number five, I think you kind of answered this in previous questions, yeah. but we'll ask it anyways. Yeah. Um, name something techie that you couldn't live without. So, you know, I'll, I'll stick with the same theme, uh, my iPhone. You know, I, I, it keeps me aware of, you know, where I need to be going yep. and how to get there and then lets me kind of stay up to date with everything that's going on around me. So, you know, it, it, it's my essential, you know, kind of go-to thing. Absolutely. And uh, our final question here, uh, this is kind of a situational question, um, something that you may see, you know, on a CISP or CEH or something like that. You know, it's a scenario-based question, right? So. If you were stranded in the middle of a client space during a vulnerability assessment or penetration test, which of these items would you bring and why? A USB stick, laptop, or a cell phone, and why? Whew, tough questions. Yep. Hey, man, I know. We, we, uh, <laughs> we asked the hard <laughs> questions here at InfoSec Inc. So I, I would go with a laptop, and the reason being um, is the tools I would need to do my job as a vulnerability assessor or, you know, to execute a pen test, you know, I can get more tools to run on that laptop. More bang uh, for than, your buck. Exactly. Than I can um, within, you know, uh, you know a, a USB stick or a cell phone. Now, if it was a operation where I was not supposed to be there and, you know, I was trying yep. to do this more secretively, I might choose a different you, option. You but may instrument it a little bit exactly, differently. Exactly. But, yep. you know, you know, in the in the sense that, you know, hey, I, I've got all those tools at my disposal. I'm going to choose the one that I can get the most done. If I need to make a call, I can, you know, use my laptop to do that. Too. Absolutely. And to our listeners, I mean, if you were listening earlier um, with our uh, story, security stories of the week and our, our tech segment, we actually dropped Cali Nethunter, um, which turns that Android device into a hacker Swiss army knife. So you want to get on there and check it out. Um, you know, like you said, it depends on the engagement, which, you know, there's no right answer to this question because it's scenario based, but that was definitely a very good answer. And, you know, I, I would do the same thing. So um, with that, that is our last question. Um, that is the end of our uh, our kind of special guest segment, our CIO, CISO corner. So thank you again, Brian, for coming on. We appreciate it. And uh, anytime you want to come back, please don't be a stranger. You're always uh, welcome on the show. Great. Well, thanks, man. And th- thanks to everybody else. Uh, and I, you know, I enjoyed this very much. Thanks. Okay. Thank you. In other Microsoft news, Microsoft mistakenly affirms that Windows 9 will be revealed next week. It may not be called Windows 9, but it's basically Windows 9. Disagreements between company executives and the army of PR people who serve them always raise a smile. 
Public relations teams work so hard to control corporate messaging, and then execs who should know better ignore it. Next week, Microsoft is having an event in San Francisco. The official purpose of the event is to show off what's next for Windows and the Enterprise. That's a little vague. It could mean a new version of Windows, or a new update, or anything in between. But Alan Crozier, president of Microsoft France, told employees earlier this week that Windows 9 was going to be shown off at the event as spotted by ZDNet France. But it turns out that wasn't suitably on message. Microsoft PR got in touch with ZDNet to tell them that the next version of Windows doesn't actually have a name, so it's not Windows 9 at all. Unless, of course, it is. We've seen this all before. Back when he was CEO, Steve Ballmer accidentally announced Windows 8's name and 2012 availability, only for PR to leap into action and dismiss Ballmer's claims as misstatements. Misstatements that just happen to be completely accurate. Whatever it turns out to be called, they will be there in San Francisco to announce it. Yeah, I wish we could be there in uh, San Francisco when this drops. Oh, that I mean, would be awesome. It'll be very interesting interesting to see what uh, Windows does for this and uh, their latest operating system. You know, I, I'm actually pretty interested to see uh, see what comes out of it. So, um, another... Uh, hey, look who just walked in. What's going on, guys? Hey, Vic, what's going <laughs> on, man? Hey, wait a minute. You guys work here in the evenings. You could at least provide some food. Um, what I see popcorn. I know. Soda. I know. Some muscle milk. What is this? I know. We you know we need some more sponsor help here. You know. What did I tell you? <laughs> you come in here, you disrespect our podcast. This is our house. So what's up, Vic? How you doing? I'm doing great, Matt. How are you doing, Nick? Good, man. How are you? I'm good, man. A little tired. A little hungry. Yeah, we'll try to fix that next time. So, um, you uh, probably missed it, Vic. Uh, we just covered um, Windows 8 is now going to be gone, and Windows 9 is the new new. So, how do you feel about that? Well, uh, I don't have a computer with Windows 8, so I don't miss that part of it. So, I guess I would, I can look forward to Windows 9. When's the release date? So, did it, did it say in your... Uh, no, they just said they're going to um, mention it next week, something big in San Francisco, and usually that's what it's going to be. Should so, I say release date or beta tester date? No, just new vulnerabilities. New, right? some, yeah, new, new something's coming out. Yeah, so uh, a lot of our client space. I mean, when we had you on, um, you talked a lot about clients, you know, transitioning over to new environments. I think that this is going to add to that, and we'll have to look at what the associated vulnerabilities are. You saw with the uh, Metro display of the Windows 8, the little bit different usability from the UI standpoint. Um, I'm really anxious to see what Windows 9 looks like, and uh, you know, the usability of it. So. Um, another story I want to cover is uh, in cloud news, right? Cloud. You all know that that's a buzzword. Um, cloud and Starbucks. Those are my two favorite words in the world, right? So um, in cloud news, IBM announced the inauguration of a new cloud resiliency center designed to help organizations protect their services from disruptions. It's located at the Research Triangle Park in Raleigh, North Carolina. The new center integrates cloud and traditional disaster recovery capabilities with innovative physical security features, and that's from IBM. And the service disruptions can have a significant financial impact on the company. A recent study by the Panaman Institute has shown that an outage lasting one to two hours can cost an organization, in some instances, an average of $32,000 per minute. That's crazy. Yeah, that's a lot of money. Yep. So in addition, long outages can negatively affect a company's reputation and implicitly on its future revenue. So, you know, if you're not going to do business with a company that has, you know, uh, maybe two nines, right? Mm -hmm. You want five nines. So with that, um, it's taken as long as 48 hours for organizations to get its services up and running again. But the cloud resiliency services have reduced the recovery times to minutes. And that's what IBM says. And the team at IBM's new Resiliency Center will monitor events 24 by 7 to ensure that customers' data, applications, and transactions are secured against the latest threats. The first company to take advantage of the center, open today in North Carolina, it's Monetize, which is a mobile banking and payment service provider that transfers $88 billion for its $30 million um, in customers each year. 
Um, banking, paying, and buying on mobile is becoming an increasingly integral and recognizable part of life. So for us as a money mobile or mobile money provider, delivering a quality always on service is essential. And that was Adam Banks, which is the EVP of technology at Monetize. He also says, as we expand globally, this partnership with IBM will allow us to provide a consistent, reliable customer service while having in place a proven cloud resiliency plan that ensures that no matter the issue, our real-time service capabilities will not be impacted. So this just shows you that you know, a uh, BCP, DRP, along with that, you should have, um, if you have services in the cloud, you should have those SLAs in place and you should have a resiliency plan from a cloud standpoint. So, um, to close this out, it looks that uh, IBM has invested heavily in the business continuity and disaster recovery solutions in the recent years, and the company is not stopping here. Later this year, it plans on opening a new, uh, new resiliency centers in Turkey and India. According to IBM, the market is expected to grow roughly $32 billion by 2015. In June, the tech giant announced opening a new security operations center in Costa Rica to address the increasing security requirements of customers in the region. So that's huge. So that's a driver for them now to expand their business and put it on to different places. Absolutely, Matt. And in other news, the day after our last podcast, Apple released updates for several of its products. And in addition to new features and functionality fixes, the company has also addressed several security issues that expose users to cyber attacks. With the release of OSX Mavericks 10.9.5 on September 18th, Apple has addressed more than 40 vulnerabilities affecting components such as PHP, Bluetooth, the core graphics framework, the Intel graphics driver, the foundation framework, IO kit, IO hit family, IO accelerator family, the kernel, open SSL, Qt media, foundation, and Ruby. The flaws can lead to arbitrary code execution, information disclosure, application termination, privilege elevation, and bypass of kernel address space layout randomization. In August, Apple informed application developers that they would have to re-sign their apps if they don't want them to be blocked by the company's gatekeeper anti-malware feature. Apple suggested at the time that applications with version 1 signatures would be blocked after the release of OSX Mavericks 10.9.5. However, a developer has reported that apps signed with version 1 signatures still work. This was a classic case of Apple communicating far too poorly about a situation that purported to affect potentially every Mac developer. Many developers spent way too much time trying to decode and make sense of the situation when Apple could have done so for us through careful clarification of the specific code signatures that needed updating, how they could be reliably verified, and what the actual consequences of inaction would be. Daniel Jalcut of IndieStack explained that in a blog post. Many of the security holes patched in OSX Mavericks are the same as the ones addressed by Apple with the, with the release of iOS 8, in which the company also fixed some backdoors brought to light earlier this year by a forensic specialist. In addition to OSX Mavericks, Apple related security updates for OSX Server, the Safari web browser, Apple TV, and the Xcode development platform. In Safari, for example, the company addressed several WebKit vulnerabilities and an issue that could have been exploited by an attacker with a privileged position on the network to intercept user credentials. With the release of OSX server versions 2.2.3 and 3.2.1, various core collaboration issues have been addressed. So Nick, this looks like they're patching a lot of vulnerabilities. If you haven't already updated, you need to. Um, but I think that, you know, what you were saying from this story is with developers, it's hitting them as well. Yeah, it's hitting them as well. And I actually updated last night. It did take me a while, so I left it running overnight. I did too. And, uh, you know, I like to stay, especially with the Mac. I mean, it, it runs so well. I don't have any issues. So I like to make sure that, you know, I stay updated. It's very easy to do. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so let's jump into another story. Sure. What do we have? So uh, 
Home Depot. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. So former information technology employees at Home Depot claim that the retailer's management had been warned for years that its retail systems were vulnerable to attack. And this was in a report by the New York Times. It also states that resistance to advice on fixing the systems reportedly led several members of Home Depot's computer security team to quit, and one who remained warned friends to use cash when shopping at the retailer stores. Whoa, whoa, that, that's huge right there. <laughs> yeah, that's, they, that's not they, good. They told their friends to do that because they knew of something. Yep, friends tell friends to use cash at Home Depot, right? So um, in 2012, Home Depot hired Ricky Joe Mitchell as its senior IT security architect. Mitchell got the job after being fired from Enervest, operating in Charleston, West Virginia. And he sabotaged that company's network in an act of revenge, taking the company offline for 30 days. <laughs> That's a long time. Mitchell retained his position at Home Depot even after his indictment a year later and remained in charge of Home, Home Depot's uh, security until he pled guilty to federal charges in January of 2014. The Home Depot breach, which reportedly began in April of 2014, went undetected until earlier this month. It exposed an estimated 56 million credit card numbers. Home Depot spokesperson Stephen Holmes told the New York Times that the company maintains, quote-unquote, robust security systems, right? And Home Depot officials have said that the malware used in the attack, Black POS, which we talked about last time, may not really be Black POS. But either way, um, Black POS had not been seen before and would have been difficult to detect with its security scans. However... Former employees contend that the company relied on out-of-date antivirus software, a version of Symantec's antivirus that was purchased in 2007, and the company did not perform network behavior monitoring, so they would not have detected unusual network traffic coming from point-of-sale systems. The Payment Card Entry, or PCI, Security Standard Councils, uh, requires security scans at least once a quarter and third-party security audits. But according to the time sources, vulnerability scans were conducted irregularly and usually only on a small number of stores. Two former Home Depot IT employees said that the security team was kept from checking a number of systems handling customers' data. So that just shows you, I mean, there were multiple failures um, here. Not only did they not maintain control, you know, of the endpoint systems, they weren't performing the vulnerability scans that were required from a regulatory compliance standpoint. Um, they yeah, did. how do you get away with that? I, You're supposed to be doing these things. Yep, and it's a large corporation. They have multiple systems. Um, this is at the basis of any uh, any of the you know security programs. And I think that the CISO, the CIO, wasn't talking to the security manager in the case of they relinquish all control to the security manager and say, hey, handle it. From a you know in the weeds technical standpoint, I want everything to be taken care of. Right, mm-hmm. that's your responsibility, and the basis of that was not being met. It sounds like neglect on their part. Absolutely. So you know another thing is with the network security monitoring and looking at what um, what regular traffic was, vice irregular traffic to look at the malicious mm-hmm. um, network traffic that was happening from the point of sale systems. That wasn't even being done. Vic, you look perplexed over there. What, what's going on? What's go- going through your head? So I think we're missing the bigger picture here. Um, an example of this uh, comes uh, Bethlehem Steel. You guys remember a company, Bethlehem Steel? Yeah, I remember yep. that Didn't company. Didn't they go bankrupt? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that was, uh, yeah, that, are they, they're in they uh, the Bethlehem, steel. Pennsylvania. No, uh, yeah, well, they actually had a... Um, like office a, out or a, a, a steel plant out here in uh, I think that's Dundalk, and Dundalk, Dundalk? Maryland. Oh yeah, right yeah. there. Okay, right on the uh, water. But uh, so I know this story for a fact because uh, my dad used to work at Bethlehem Steel, and uh, if you ever looked at the s- smokestack over there, it used to pump out black smoke twenty four seven. So I used to ask my dad as a as a kid, I said, Dad, that, that's pollution, right? And um, I said, shouldn't they fix that? And he said, well, the cost of the fix is more expensive than the fine, which ironically, <laughs> my mom worked for the state of Maryland, so it was cheaper for Bethlehem Steel to pay the fine for polluting the air. So your family was in cahoots is what you're telling me. So, <laughs> that, that's, that's, so I, or my mom liked to find my dad, right? Yeah, so, yeah that's, that's funny. So what I'm, I'm, I'm using this to say that Home Depot, you had mentioned earlier in the in the program that um, the IT co- employees had the, recognized that there was an issue, 
It was brought to multiple people's attention, but nobody really took it seriously. So they may have taken it seriously. Well, they may. may, Yeah, but but, it's easier to kind of say, I'm not going to even see that. I don't even care about that. So offloading it and not really taking it into account is much cheaper than actually taking the issue head on and right. and taking care of it. So, so I think what happened is is if you do a price point on it and someone came back and said, hey, it's going to cost X amount of dollars, they said, you know what, we'll accept that risk. And it didn't make financial sense. It didn't. They, they, they from, lost From their deal. standpoint. And we can see, what was it, 56 million cards yeah. were, were, um, yeah. were leaked? That, I mean, that's... That's on epic proportions, and for an employee to be telling their friends, "Hey, go ahead and use cash," that's you know that's icing on top of the cake here. If they recognize the issue, you know there should be should be something there. Well, let's ask this question. I don't know if you guys know this, but fifty-six million cards. Who's responsible for that? Is now now no? It's it's the onus is on the banks. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So at the end of the day, the issuance of new cards, um, the I think the banks have been at the brunt of all of it. Um, the financial industry needs a lot of help right now. I think they're they're handling the issue and they're kind of looking at things happening. But ultimately, the retailers, everybody on the out that's accepting this payment card information, the onus ultimately falls on the banks. Yeah, Nick, I think uh, the banks need some help out there. So yeah, what they, do you think they, about that? They certainly do. And you know what, guys? I had uh, done some research to find out more information, and I found a great article from John Pescator. He is the director of Emerging Security Trends at the Sands Institute, and he's also a former VP and distinguished analyst at Gartner. He has over 30 years of experience in computer network and information security. So what he was saying was the Home Depot breach is the largest ever, but it is really just another example of, quote, you can pay me now or you can pay me a lot more and later. And this goes directly <laughs> in line with what Vic was saying. And, and John Pestacor, if you want to come on the show and CIO Corner and kind of talk about this a little bit, we would definitely entertain that. But that just shows you um, the cost of it. So if you look at it from a bean counting from, okay, let's let's compare dollars. How much will it cost for me to take care of the issue? It was a lot more to take care of the issue than to just put it off till later and then just handle it all at one time. So it's, it's kind of like our hunger right now. It's more cost effective for us to put off our hunger than it was to order to a order pizza. pizza. Yeah, <laughs> so. That's so, true. So back to this. John says the root cause of the breach can be traced to Home Depot's failure to implement the first subcontrol under critical security control two, which is deploy application whitelisting technology that allows systems to run software only if it is included on the whitelist and prevents execution of all other software on the system. So the whitelist may be very extensive so that users are not inconvenienced when using common software or for some special purpose systems, the whitelist may be quite narrow. So, you know, there's, um, I think there's the Australian digital or the um, defense signals directorate the australian dsd they published a a top list for individuals when they're trying to you know the critical security controls with sands and things like that they have steps to take in the right direction when trying to do that and that's at the top of the list but most clients when you go in there and you say all right it's a lot easier for you to blacklist than whitelist and say okay um, I know what's bad and malicious from a signature standpoint, what I've seen traditionally as being bad, but now I want to see what's in the organization. I think sometimes it's hard for customers to track what's in the organization and then apply a whitelist to that. That has to be early on in that you know, that testing phase, right? That, that has to be part of the CM and all the other associated functions. So, um, so John, John goes on to say Home Depot was relying primarily on antiviral software as required by the PCI DSS regimen. But reports say even internal Home Depot security staff knew it was not sufficient. Since no AV software will recognize and stop custom attack code, the attackers were able to load and run malicious software on Home Depot's self-service registers. So you listeners probably ask yourself, how much was at risk? So Home, De- Home Depot, their investigation reported that 56 million card numbers were exposed. That's a lot, yeah. The latest uh, Ponymon Institute of Cost of a Data Breach report estimates estimates that the cost per exposed account would be roughly $200 with a predicted cost at 11.2 billion Billion, with a B. That's ridiculous. So that's obviously way high. The cost per account drops when tens of millions of accounts are are actually involved. And you know who ends up paying for that? 
Just the, the consumers. Yep. Yeah. The You're banks and the consumers. Right? It, it always the the uh, cost always gets passed on to the consumer, which in this case is the endpoint because right. that's the consumer they're actually using the cards. Get ready for higher interest rates. <laughs> yep. So CyberPoint has uh, developed an innovative tool called uh, CyberVar, which uh, that can produce a value at risk. Um, figure after modeling and environment and vulnerabilities. The CyberPoint tool allows existing or missing uh, critical controls to be considered in the analysis. So using publicly available information, CyberPoint um, produced a CyberVar run that shows a $246 million cost of this type of incident, which is a more realistic $4 per account um, breached at these large numbers. So we'll actually post it up on... Um, on our show, show notes. notes, but yeah, full copy of uh, CyberVar, we'll, we'll put it up there. So, so um, John John did a cost estimate um, himself, focusing only on critical security control too and whitelisting. He made some worst case assumptions of what Home Depot's cost of preventing this breach would have been. He goes on to say, whitelisting isn't the only way it could have been prevented, but on single purpose systems like point of sale registers, whitelisting is actually probably the most effective and efficient approach. So here's the assumptions, one, Home Depot has 2,200 stores. Two, eight devices per store would require whitelisting software rounded up to 10,000 total. Three, $30 device per year cost of the whitelisting software, roughly 300K per year. Four, one server for every 10 stores at 5K per server, uh, list pricing 1 million. Five, two man weeks of integration installation effort at 2,200 store stores his estimate 22 million the biggest cost Six. so dang the total cost would have been 25 million if yeah. my if my calculations are correct yeah, 25 million with ongoing yearly cost of under 1 million a year that's a lot cheaper than what they're gonna have to pay so now 25 million is much less than 246 million so but wait a minute wasn't home depot had to pay 25 million to to stay current right yep but they, the, but the banks the banks have to pay the money not home depot so didn't they make out no, not so. This would be in their enterprise environment. If mm -hmm. they were to um, kind of, in hindsight, apply the controls and actually apply them correctly, it would have cost Home Depot twenty-five million dollars with an ongoing yearly cost of under one mil. So twenty-five mil initially, and then one mil for um, for you know uh, concurrency and, and actually keeping everything current and running. That's a lot cheaper than what they're paying now. But like I said. Whitelisting PCs has been nearly impossible to make work on business PCs, and um, whitelisting on servers and single function servers or appliances has proven to cause near zero business or IT administration dis disruption. And then, um, let's see, 25 mil, like we said, is much less than 246 million. Now, even for an 80 billion per year company like Home Depot, 25 mil is a big number. In fact, it is almost as much as Home Depot spent on Google Ads, $40 million in 2013. Wow. Businesses take risks. Spending on advertising is betting on more sales coming in than ad dollars going out. And not spending on security is betting on an attack not happening. Yeah. However, after that target breach, um, it, when it became public, any rational risk assessment would have significantly raised the probability of the bad thing happening to pretty close to 100%. Wow. So, um, and for our listeners, it was the uh, Australian Defense Signals Directorate, DSD. They actually have a top 35. So if you go on the internet, search on Google, uh, Australian DSD top 35, it'll be on there. You can download it, as well as the SANS top 20 and things like that. Vic, do you have anything to add further on to that? Um, actually, I do. Um, with all the credit card numbers, accounts being stolen, and I'm really, I'm very conscientious about credit reports. And I think to all the listeners out there, protect yourself. Please, um, you know, visit a website, annualcreditreport.com. It's free. It's for you. I think you get one. You get to look at your credit once a year. And um, I know little tips and tricks um, to help fix your credit report. Um, we should we should actually do a segment on you know different security methods to apply to you know everyday financial life, and how we can apply that make it better from a security standpoint as well as just regular financial security tips. I think and regular financial tips in general. I think that that would be great. A lot of our listeners would 
kind of take that in. Yeah, I think that'd be good too. Maybe we'll bring on an expert or something. Actually, I feel that I'm an expert. That's like one of my passions. I've really researched this before in the past and my wife has worked in the credit business before. So we, we've, uh, well, that's perfect. I guess uh, the hard work's done. We found the expert. So you listeners are lucky. Yeah, Vic's gonna stop by again, uh, maybe next week or the week after. I'll I'm the cloud expert, right? I guess you could say. So I'll I'll be doing that, and um, Vic, you can go ahead and, and do a little bit of a segment on that. So our listeners have a lot to look forward to. I'll bring some pizza too. Oh, that sounds good. All right, we're gonna take a break and, and come back and close and out the show. The show. All right, we're back, and uh, we're going to finish out the show here. So we'd like to give out some uh, shout-outs. Um, Brian Price, thanks for coming on. Uh, he's uh, Van Dyke Technology Group Commercial. Be sure to check them out at VDTG.com. would like to give a shout-out to Secure360, who started following us on Twitter during this broadcast. Also like to give a big shout-out to Bob West and CypherCloud. He gave a great... Um, Beach last night at the uh, Issa Baltimore chapter. We like to good. also shout out the Issa Baltimore chapter. Um, Nick and myself are both members, as well as the ISC Squared, Squared Baltimore, Baltimore chapter. Um, October seventeenth, I will be presenting on um, on cloud infrastructure as a service, platform as a service, and software as a service. And uh, we like to also shout out the OWASP Baltimore chapter. So with that, um, we are also uh, up to four hundred listeners on the podcast, and we have. A over 1800 views on the site so thank you so much fans appreciate it and we will be back uh next week for another show send us comments suggestions on our website feedback feedback at infosexsync.com and with that we're out see ya see ya